all extremely welcome. Would you please help me to open the meeting with a moment's silence, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. This is the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. We'll now read a portion of Chapter 5 of our book Alcoholics Anonymous. To those who are new, these three pages may seem strange and unrelated to your specific problems. Do not be discouraged. Take what you can and file the rest for future reference. Tonight, I have asked Angela to read this excerpt. Hi, I'm Angela and I'm an alcoholic. How it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover, oh, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault, they seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those too who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are, re are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we walked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 
Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. Thanks, Angela. Uh, just another brief reminder to turn off all mobile phones and pages. Uh, AA also has a set of traditions which apply to the group conscience in much the same manner as the steps apply to the individual. Tonight, I've asked Toby to read these. Good evening, my name's Toby. I'm an alcoholic and a member of Shell Harbour Tuesday night meetings of AA. The local. Uh, the 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous, autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest, mothers, lest problems of money, property and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centres may employ special workers. Nine, AA as such ought never be organised, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio and films. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thanks, Toby. It now gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker for this evening, Clancy I from Los Angeles. Would you please help make him welcome? My name is Clancy Imusland. I'm an alcoholic. I'm 
very glad to be here tonight. Glad to be back in Australia. I've been here several times over the years. I always like to come here. It's always a pleasure. Someone always treats me well. I, uh, the trip is getting a little longer as I get older, however. I, uh, when I was a young man, younger man, and came down here, I could tap dance through that trip. Now it's a kind of a, I have to be helped off the plane. But it isn't as bad as some. A few years ago, a few years ago, I was uh, speaking in Iceland. I don't know if you know where Iceland is, off the coast of Norway. It, it isn't as far as Australia, but it seems like a lot further. And I came back there on a plane, and I was so tired, and we have to stop in Minneapolis Sunday night for about four hours. I had to hurry and then catch a plane back to Los Angeles to go to work the next morning. And I was sitting in the airport in Minneapolis, and I was tired and felt old and forgotten. And, and then I was sitting in the red carpet room, which is the United Airlines uh, frequent flyer room, and I, I had to go to the washroom, so I went to their little washroom, and they have two little stalls side by side. It's very nice and clean. And I, I sat in one of these stalls, and I was sitting there doing what I do in the stalls. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, the voice came out the other side and said, Hi there. <laughs> Can't mean me. So. I just ignored it. Pretty soon the voice said, what are you doing tonight? <laughs> and I thought, oh, I, I do want to put up with this, so I better settle this down. Just, I'll tell you what, I'm going back to Los Angeles to see my wife and my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, but thank you for asking. Why not it uh, nice of you to ask? There was a long pause, and this voice said, we could really have some fun tonight if you wanted to. <laughs> And I was tired and a little impatient, and I, I said, look, I don't know what your problem is, and I don't know what's wrong with you. I, I'm not wired the way you are, apparently, but why don't you just drop it and leave me alone? And there was a long pause, and the voice said, I'll have to call you back. This jerk in the next stall won't shut up. <laughs> that might be funny to you. But I, uh, I really am glad to be here tonight, and especially as that's a magnificent day is June 10th, which is the 70th anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous. And a lot of us, you know, we come here and we just think it's always been here and always going to be here. But I want to just take a couple of minutes for those of you who may be new. You know, it's the beginning of AA was such a series of coincidences and just seconds and minutes and inches. And uh, most of you, some of you remember, you know, that in 19... Well, let me put it this way. There seem to be two types of alcoholics. We don't ever talk about it much, but there seems to be at least two types. One type that seems to be an alcoholic by any way you measure them, they drink and they can't control it and so on. But something happens that significantly threatens their security. Maybe they lose a family or lose a job or someone dies. And they quit. And they never drink again. And there's a number of cases like that around. And the same type of alcoholic, if they have become physically addicted as well, they are the people for whom treatment centers were originally created to step-by-step step take them off medically off this alcohol addiction. People say, what's the big deal about alcohol addiction? I'll tell you something strange you may not know. Alcoholic addiction is much more lethal than drug addiction. Many more people die to withdraw from alcohol addiction than from drug addiction. But they take them each step of the way, and each step of the way they show them the nature of their problem, and they quit and they never drink again 
In fact, there's a hospital up in Seattle called Shik Shedel that specializes in those kind of people. And they say, we will cure your alcoholism in a month. And they do. And they have a big, long list of names of people. But of course, they, they only take the people, if they can help it, of that type of alcoholic. Then there's another type of alcoholic who seems to be an alcoholic by any way you measure them. They can't drink, can't control it. And something happens that really threatens their security. Maybe lose a job, a family, somebody dies or something. And they quit. But they always eventually begin to drink again. Much to the startled expressions of the people around them. And these same people come out of treatment centers with tears of sincerity rolling down their cheeks. And they mean it. And they say, I'll quit. I quit. But they always eventually drink again. And these type of alcoholics are the people who have been puzzlements to everyone who's tried to help them for 5,000 years in recorded history. Everything ever tried to, at one time they put them to death, they thought they were possessed by devils. They flogged them and lock them up and send them away. A lot of them came to Australia from England. Uh, <laughs> I had to talk to their descendants. Not really, I mean, it was all, it's always been a puzzlement. And even in my lifetime, there was no answer for it. And you may not think this is a big deal, but I'll tell you where you might have the same reaction to it as I do. And that is seeing the face of someone you love, or who loves you, with that terrible, oh my goodness, how could you do this? You were doing so well. You promised. And the children, and you're about to have your job back, and now look at you drunk again. How could you do this? And it really rips you up inside. Nobody can say, oh, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. And these are the type of alcoholics that have just never been any answer to. And that's why it's such a remarkable thing that this place started some time ago. Because they've been trying to help these people for years. And it almost didn't start. You know, it starts because a guy in New York, son of a very wealthy family, had this problem. His parents thought it was his nerves. When he gets nervous, he drinks so much. We can only help his nerves. So they called the best doctor in the world that they knew to uh, help him, see if he'd help him. A lot of people don't know who they called. They called Dr. Jung, or they called Dr. Freud. The first contact they made was to Dr. Freud. And Dr. Freud refused to accept the case, which was the first good luck we ever had. Uh, <laughs> We might have all been sitting here drunk and I said, yeah, but I dreamt I was sober. <laughs> so they went to his ex-friend, Dr. Jung, and Dr. Jung took this guy to his hospital for a year in Switzerland and sent him home as a recovered case. And he stopped in Paris to drink with some, have, to eat dinner with some friends of his family. And they toasted his new success with wine and three days later, he was drunk again and sick and face down. And they sent him back to the doctor in Switzerland. And the doctor refused to take him back. And they said, why? Roland didn't really mean any harm. He said, I don't know. I misdiagnosed his case. I thought I could help his deep psychological problems. What I see now, he said, that he's in what's called an alcoholic. And to the best of my knowledge, there is no treatment for that condition today in the world at any cost. This was 1931, not very long ago. The best doctor in the world had never heard of a treatment for alcoholism. And Roland, a little taken back, he says, what does this mean, doctor? He says, what it means is you have to keep yourself confined voluntarily or involuntarily as long as you live. 
or else you almost certainly will drink to excess until you die or go mad. And that really, he felt bad about that. He said, is there any other solution at all? He said, well, in the literature, there's been some few cases of some involuntary psychological reversion. They call it a spiritual experience, but I've never seen one. I, you can't rely on that. So Roland came home, and he was uh, convinced he was going to die drunk. So there was a religious group, kind of spiritual group. He was a strong church member, but he, he got this spiritual group called the Oxford Movement. And he, uh, as he wrote later, I wanted to stay sober as long as I could so that my parents would have a pleasant memory of me when I died drunk. And some years later, when he died drunk, his parents had a friendly memory of him. But he, uh, through a series of quirks, he, his family gave him a vacation in Vermont, up in northern United States, and he happened to go there just arbitrarily selected time, and he got there the very week that saved our life. Because when he got there, a childhood friend of his from years ago was going to the penitentiary for breaking his parole, his probation on drinking. And uh, he was a friend of uh, the judge, so he said, Judge, release him to my custody, I'll take him to New York. If he got there a week later, we wouldn't be here. But he got this guy back to New York and uh, got him in the Oxford movement. And this guy didn't much like the Oxford movement, but he, at least he wasn't in the Vermont penitentiary. And after a while, in the Oxford movement, he had to go testify to somebody. He said, Emmy, you have to go testify to somebody. Emmy didn't want to testify. I don't know. Well, do you want to go to the penitentiary? No, I think I'll testify. <laughs> but he, he found, he happened to think of a childhood friend of his that had moved to New York, who was a bigger mooch than he was, who'd been some big success, but now was living off his wife, just a mooch. He thought, I'll go over and testify to this goof. He won't even remember it tomorrow. So he made arrangements to go testify to this drunken bum called Bill Wilson. Just sucked out of him. And he went over to Brooklyn and made arrangements. We, in our book, we talked to Bill, said he came to the door and said, I, uh, I've, I've found religion. And Bill was quite depressed. I heard Emmy talk some years ago. I heard Emmy talk some years ago. He had a little, little fun a little further. He said he went in and sat down with Bill and was talking about the Oxford movement. And Bill just kept drinking as fast as he could. Yeah. That's really wonderful, Abby. I'm happy for you. <laughs> and he laughed and he was upset about this. He had to be put down by this drunk. And this is done in our literature, but I guarantee it's true. He came back three days later and he had the Oxford group closer with him. Mr. Wilson, you're talking about the Oxford group. And Bill Wilson reacted, I hope, as any of us would, when not one of the damnedest drunks of his life. Screw you and the Oxford group. And he was drunk for a few days and wound up in the hospital again. And these guys went up to see him. And Abby said, you've got to find a higher power, Bill. So I'm going to, don't give me that religious crap. That doesn't work for me. And in the middle of the night, this drunken mooch woke up in the middle of the night and cried out in the darkness, if there's a God, show yourself. What? You know, he, as anyone who was would. And he had an experience that uh, he thought he was going insane. Because he said, it looks as though the room lit up. And there seemed to be some wind blowing. And uh, he didn't know what it was. He was very frightened. He said, my mind's gone. And he determined later he might be had one of those spiritual experiences. But he came out of there and he went to the Oxford group. People said, what's the big deal about Emmy and all those other guys? Because the very few people who ever had spiritual experiences went to church. And he didn't go to church. He went to the Oxford group to try to help drunkards. And he tried to help drunkards and had very little luck. But he finally got a job after a few months. They sent him out to Akron, Ohio to put a deal together where he'd become the president of the company. His one chance to go back to the world 
and that blew up in his face and he was going to, I remember he was going to stand in the hotel lobby going to get drunk. Some years ago I stood in that hotel lobby trying to imagine what it must be like. He had $10 in his pocket. He could either pay his hotel bill or take a train home to New York and admit his failure. And right over there was a little door with a curved top over it says cocktails. And anyone in this room knows the feeling. If I just have a couple drinks, I'll, I'll find a solution to this problem. And he went towards that door. And our lives hung by the thinnest thread available. But it turned out that he saw some telephones. And he remembered that the, he was supposed to call somebody the auction movement. Through a series of dumb things, he got a hold of some, min some minister who gave him the name of a woman who said that her doctor was a drunk. And they got together and... He moved in with the doctor to talk to him. They talked about the spiritual examiner of the doctor. How could could stay sober? And after two weeks, the doctor went to a medical convention, got so drunk, he had to be carried off the train. And again, our life barely held. But this time they got together and they uh, came to the realization that sitting around talking about spiritual matters is not what had kept Bill, the original guy, sober. He tried to help people. So they went up to Akron Hospital and they begin the policy of AIM trying to help other people. And in fact, when this doctor coming off his last drunk woke up in the morning, one morning, so sick, in bed, oh God, and Bill and his wife were standing there. He said, what day is it? He said, it's Wednesday, Bob. Oh my God, I have to do a surgery today and I can't look at my hand. I've got to do a cancer surgery. My God, I can't do it. But they got him up and they bathed him and got his clothes on and Bill took him out and got him a drink, a couple of drinks to hold his stand steady. And he went down to the hospital and did the surgery. And he put down the drink and he put down the scalpel. That was June 10th, 1935. That was the birth of this organization. But a, in, not a very enhanced beginning of an organization. But little by little they got some people and the more people didn't stay around than did, but eventually grew through a series of things and articles and Reader's Digest, every survey post. And uh, to make a long story short, it's now over two million sober alcoholics of our type, alcoholics of our type who have never stayed sober in history in 134 countries and who are uh, doing the same things. And it's grown to something beyond anybody could conceive and the only problem we have today is that uh, still a lot of people like us die drunk. And a lot of people like us go to AA and think that can't help me. My case is different. The universal cry of every alcoholic of our type. And so, but anyway, we're very successful. 70 years and never had been done before. And uh, so what do we have to talk about? Well, I'll tell you, I travel around the world a lot in AA. And over the years, I hear a lot of things. And I talk to a lot of people around the world. And and especially around the United States. And there seems to be a school of thought that AA now is 70 years sober, 70 years old, but it needs to be modernized. It needs to be modernized. It's kind of written for the 1930s. It's not written for a new generation of people, a new century. And it really boils down into maybe four, four or five categories. One, one argument is proposed a great deal is that maybe we've passed the point where we have to be an alcoholic, to be an AA. That maybe we should encompass other people with addictive problems. For example, uh, narcotics 
or food or gambling or any one of the series of things that destroy people's lives. And we don't have to be so selective anymore. We don't have to have anything to hide and be protective. We should encompass everyone. And there's another school of thought uh, that also believes that we should be perhaps the, uh, that we should not, maybe we should change the book. The book is a good book, but it's written in 1930s style. The language is not very modern, not very exciting. It's kind of a, even at best, it's not a terribly exciting book. And maybe we should kind of streamline it and bring it up to date to get a little more possessed and get younger people to come in. In addition to that, that uh, there's, why should we have to be so concerned about anonymity anymore? Maybe in 1935 or 1940 when people were so ashamed of being an alcoholic, they had a big anonymity, but uh, hardly any reason for it today. And the other thing, of course, of course, it, I know this already happened in, in Australia, but in most of the world, they say the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting. And uh, there's a school of thought that the Lord's Prayer is really much too religious for keeping people out. Where they do say the Lord's Prayer, we shouldn't be using the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's, it keeps Jewish people out, keeps non-Christians out. It's a Christian prayer. And so these schools of thought believe that Alcoholics Anonymous has done a wonderful job, but could do so much more if it were streamlined. And I want to tonight just talk for a few minutes about these thoughts, about where do we go from here? It's time maybe we should go somewhere. Now, they say, why do you, why must you be an alcoholic to be an Alcoholics Anonymous? I mean, you know, the therapy is so universally good that why would you have to have to be an alcoholic? And the universal cry, of course, they always say is this. It's all one big disease. Alcoholism, narcotic addiction, food, compulsion, gambling, cocaine. Do you know where that phrase came from? It's all one big disease. That started with the treatment center that only had one van. How <laughs> we in the van, it's all one big disease. Why would we have to have to be an alcoholic? Why would you have to be an alcoholic to be an Alcoholics Anonymous? And to understand that, you have to get back to the basic concept of what causes the, re the rejection of treatment or the of recovery here. If there's one universal, one universal trait of all alcoholics that I've ever heard of, of our type, it's this. I know you mean well when you try to help me. But my case is different. We laugh about that, but that kills all of us. The ones that don't hear, my case is different. You don't understand. Because the defense mechanism of people like us is quite strong. And we've been listening to re ad re advice and suggestions for all kind, all of our lives. And they are, it might be work for people like them, but it doesn't work for, like, for people like me. Because my problem is not, they, don't, they think my problem is alcohol. It isn't alcohol. If it were, I'd quit a long time ago. My problem is, maybe I'm too sensitive. Maybe I get my emotions around a whack. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I just don't get treated right. Maybe I haven't been nurtured enough or something. But I know that sometimes I feel so bad, and I have discovered that two or three drinks helps me more than all the advice and all the psychiatry and all the books and all the literature. And then sometimes I drink too much. 
And that's wrong, I suppose. But so I'm going to try to find a way to drink without going to extremes. And I, was, I thought, I always thought I was the only one who really had that problem. I remember after I was sober a while and read that page, in, the first page of chapter three, where they describe that. If you're kind of feeling different, they talk about what people like you and I, what do we have in common? It's so easy to see what we don't have in common. But what do we have? Look around the room. Different sizes and shapes and colors and every story is different. What the hell do we have in common? In that, in that little page, it talks about one thing we have in common. Alcoholics of our type, somewhere along the line, have voluntarily or involuntarily had to accept the obsession that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking. It says the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many of us pursue it into the gates of insanity and death. And talked about how we fight against accepting the label alcoholic, because that indicates my problem is alcohol. And we have occasional brief recoveries, and everybody's had those, followed always by still worse relapse, and we've all had those, or else we'd be here tonight. And you finally get to a point of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I remember reading that and thinking, boy, they get awfully drunk to be like that. But that isn't what that means at all. That's how you feel after you sober up again. And the heat's on. And you're going to turn around and imp. Just leave me alone! And then you keep drinking. And then you have a few little lines of why people like us do. We change from one kind of booze to another, or we drink beer only, or we try drinking wine only, or we only drink at home, or we never drink at home, or we take physical exercise, or we read spiritual literature, and all sorts of things. But always, and it just baffles people around us. My God, look what alcohol is doing to you. What do you keep drinking it for? You don't understand. My case is different. And so we, uh, what would, what would change that? somehow to enable people to get through that armor somehow. How do you get through that armor? Because that armor only opens up from the inside. It doesn't open. There's no thing you can do from the outside to get through it. And the one thing that helps get through is trying to convince someone or being able to tell someone that I have the same feelings and emotions you do. I've had the same experiences you've had. I drink for the same reasons you do. And maybe they'll open the armor just mm, a little bit. It's called identification. I remember I, I slipped in and out of AA for 10 years. And I went from being a successful high bottom AA to being a skid row bottom with my teeth kicked out and standing on the street corner. And I would have bet my life I'm not an alcoholic because my problem isn't alcohol. My problem is a lot of things that my psychiatrist couldn't find out even just something wrong with me. It's, that's how it's fun to say I wasn't nurtured as a child. This adult children of alcoholic thing is so nice you can lay the heat off on somebody else always. Not my fault. But I would have bet the last day I drank, I would have bet my life there was no answer for a problem like mine. And I knew all about AA. And I walked in the rain 72 blocks to an A club and I fell into the hands of some crazed old alcoholics. One more time. And this one guy impressed me because he was a movie actor. So I listened to him a little bit. And over a period of time, what happened, little by little, I began listening and I thought, my God, this guy seems to know how I feel. 
he was, I got him to be my sponsor, and I was going to just get some money off him, get out of town, and uh, he somehow held me. And I really had a plan. My, my, here's a motivation to stay sober. I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to get some front teeth of some money from this goof. Get some front teeth. Get some clothes. I'll go to New York, where I've been fired as an advertising guy. I say, I'm, I'm, don't drink anymore. I've learned my lesson. I'll work for nothing till you're sure I'm, I'm okay. And I'll save some money. And I'll come back to Los Angeles someday. And I'll buy this AA club. And I'll burn it down. And I hope they're all in and having a big meeting. Not much of a reason to stay sober. I'll tell you something. What I look back now, I didn't realize this at the time, but I look back, and what really saved my life, I began thinking, this guy seems to know how I feel. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but I'll tell you, you and I have been listening to advice all our lives. And if you're like me, I never had anybody that I really believed in how I felt. My dad didn't. My bosses never did. My minister never did. Nobody ever seemed to know how I feel. Because it's a strange thing. But this guy seemed to know how I feel. He said, well, what's the big deal about that? I'll tell you the big deal about that is this. If you find someone that you believe knows how you feel, you may do things they say whether or not you agree with them. That's the, that's the most startling thing of it all. And if, you, if they know how you feel, what from everyone else's advice, from this person becomes meaningful information with identification. And I remember thinking, I'll, I'm going to try doing what he says. That probably won't work, but I'm going to try it. And the only problem in getting a sponsor that, that you believe in, then they have you do stupid things. Stupid. Stupid. Now, they don't actually say this, but it sounds like this. They might say, see that curtain back there? That's bright red. Oh, I don't think so, Bob. <laughs> Looks pretty blue to me. I tell you, it's red. <laughs> I think it's blue, Bob. Well, damn it, you act like it's red. Ah. Now, they don't tell you the colors from curtains because that's too easy to check, but they tell you things equally stupid. I want you to apologize to that woman. You call her a bitch. She is a bitch, Bob. Why do you think she's a bitch? She told her new girls to stay away from me. Well, she's right. You apologize. Sorry. Bitch. I don't care how it looks to you, you stay on that job. Jesus, Bob, you got me stuffing envelopes at a dollar and nine cents an hour. I used to have an office bigger than this whole company. I got a lot of talent, Bob. I don't care, just do the job till you get a better one. <laughs> I don't care, I understand you missed the Wednesday, Friday night meeting, eh? Oh, Jesus, Bob, it's a big kick. They just call on each other, they think you're all cute, they think you're smart, they treat you like a piece of crap. Well, maybe they know something. You go to that meeting. <laughs> and this goes on and on and on and on. You think, how much longer can I go stand it? And you turn around one day and the damn curtain is red. 
and you have to spend your life dealing with dumbbells who think it's blue. But that's exactly how AA works. Through actions, our perceptions of the same things change. And that is why it's so important. And that is why it is imperative there will be identification. And that is why we ask that you have to be an alcoholic. Because, now for example, I've been working with narcotics addicts in one form or another for 30 years. But to this day, if I sit in a meeting, I don't care how slick the guy is, gives up and talks about drugs, it's just information to me. I mean, I'd much rather have some just, um, I drank too much, I'm not sure my problem is alcohol, but I'm sure up the creek there, I got a sponsor, I'm trying to do better, I've been sober over 14 days, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know that feeling, baby. Identification. And that is why members of AA, a member of AA, Jim Willis, friend of mine, who has also had a severe gambling problem in 1957, went to AA and said, could I use the 12 steps and form something called Gamblers Anonymous? I had them try to come to AA, but they didn't identify. I'll give them a place where they can identify. And he was the first one to form, in 1958, two guys in North Hollywood, California, who were also narcotics addicts, heroin addicts, as well as alcoholic. They got permission to form Narcotics Anonymous so that narcotics addicts would have a place to go and identify. Same program, same steps, except inserting that word. That's why members of a woman with a severe eating problem in 1960 called AA and got permission to form Overeaters Anonymous for the 12 steps and Cocaine Anonymous. That's where they all came from, for one reason only, so they could establish identification. Because without that, it's just information, and information has never kept people like us straight. I never really understood that till 1960. After, for example, I was, I, was, I was two years sober, and I was giving a little talk at the A Club that I was going to burn down at one time. Now I'd accepted it. <laughs> and uh, still didn't have any front teeth, but I, I'd give a good talk on obsessions. I'm authority on obsessions, not what to do about them, but the obsessions themselves, I know a lot about them. And this rather plump woman came up afterwards, she says, oh, that was just wonderful. She said, I've just formed an organization called Overeaters Anonymous. We meet over at Christ the King Church on Olympic Boulevard. We've been there a couple of months. Would you come over on Sunday and talk to our ladies about obsessions? And I weighed about 130 pounds, I was pretty scrawny. Sure. <laughs> give them some hope when they see my flat stomach. And I was there on Sunday, and I went to this room, there were about eight fat women sitting around the table. And they gave them a great talk on obsessions. I got done, they all agreed, and it was wonderful. And then they, they were just, you know, they were just all nodding. But I got done, then they shared. And I'd, I'd never heard anything like that. Woman over here said that she had her son's 10th birthday. He went to a military school in Long Beach. She sent the husband down to pick him up, 30 miles. She had a beautiful two-layer cake for his birthday. Took one little taste, then another. But the guy back, the cake was gone. I thought, I didn't say anything because I'm too nice a guy. But... <laughs> Jesus, have a piece of cake and forget it. What the hell's wrong with you? 
woman over here talked about eating ice cream. She just ate ice cream and got, got more ice cream and ice cream. I just can't give up ice cream. I, remember, I didn't say anything because I'm too nice a guy. But I, I thought, no wonder you're fat. Jesus. <laughs> woman over here talked about she ate till she couldn't eat anymore, then put her finger down her throat and puked so she could eat some more. And my immediate thought was, uh, don't bother shaking hands with me after the meeting. <laughs> I can see doing that for drinking, but not eating. I've done it for drinking a lot. Oh, Saturday afternoon, I'm some still up. I better just hold up. <laughs> now, what was the difference? I could understand it intellectually. I just didn't identify with it. So it was just information. That would never change my thinking about anything. That's why we have to have this identification. And that is why I suppose we have to remember that you have to be an alcoholic to be an alcoholic anonymous because when you get up there, you gotta share to enable someone to identify with you. I have three daughters who are turning sixteen this year in AA. And I have a grandson who just had a year. I have a great grandson who's three years old and is either an alcoholic or the spawn of the devil. I've heard of terrible twos, but this is terrible. <laughs> but I, I look at his back of his neck every so often, just see if there's a little 666 back there. But when that little craphead comes to, comes to AA someday, I want him to hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to hear some garbled stuff from a treatment center or somebody with a problem entirely, someone talking about their food problems or their narcotic problems or anything, because that's what it's about. So really, although, Intellectually, it sounds maybe we're being too selective, making sure that you're an alcoholic. That's not the purpose of it all. The purpose of it is so that we can identify. Because Alcoholics Anonymous, exactly the same in one way tonight in Sydney as it was seven years ago today in Akron, Ohio. It is one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic to help him reduce his feelings of difference at least enough so that he will begin to take actions he does not yet believe in. And when that time comes, that is the gestation of sobriety. Then they wonder why we should maintain anonymity. Because anonymity is really pretty passe, you know, so you shouldn't have to remain anonymous, we don't have to be afraid anymore. And it started out as a defense mechanism, I guess, for alcoholics so they wouldn't be in trouble or be, be found out. But over the years, it's evolved into something entirely different. Anonymity has nothing really to do with protection anymore at all. It has evolved, as, as was said in our tradition, into a spiritual concept. In fact, the last letter Bill Wilson wrote before he died dealt with the spiritual concept of anonymity. And the spiritual concept of anonymity is that we have to subjugate our ego to the overall good here. I know when I was new in 1958, there was a woman named Lillian Roth. She wrote a book called I'll Cry Tomorrow. They made a movie with Susan Hayward. But in her book, she talked about how she had come to AA now. She's a member of AA. They said, you better not put that in there, Lillian. She said, I, listen, I'm a big singing star. When they realize I'm an AA, they'll feel they can come too. And a couple of years later, when she was face down drunk in Palm Springs, I don't know what everybody thought about AA then. I don't know if anybody paid any attention. But it destroyed her. It killed her. A couple years later, John Barrymore, famous actor, his daughter, uh, Diana Duff Barrymore, 
wrote a book. She even went a step further. She was now, it helped her not only to stop drinking, but now she could have wine with dinner. And when she died drunk in the Malibu jail, people were upset about that, and on and on. But I watched people break their anonymity again and again and again in the last uh, 46 years, and never once has it ever done anything positive for them, and usually it destroys them. Now, why would you think that is? Do you think God is punishing them or something? I don't think so. I don't think God cares about that much as we do. But what I believe the purpose of anonymity is this, is that I surrendered my ego to AA, surrendered myself to AA, try to do what AA says, and I'm, I get my help from AA. When I become above AA, say, look, I'm a big shot. I'm an AA, and now you little people can come to me. I now put myself in the helper position, A in the help being helped. And somehow it changes the chemistry entirely. And I never can be a good AA after that because I've already helped them. It sounds ridiculous, but it's just the strangest thing. Anonymity is so... A lot of people don't even know what anonymity is. Exactly. If you're new, you might not know. In my work in Los Angeles, nature of my work, I get a lot of publicity. I'm on television a lot. They have an article about me in the Reader's Digest and some magazines, and I'm, I'm very, very well known. And I'm known as a recovered alcoholic. And I say, didn't you break your anonymity? No. Because I'm a recovered alcoholic as far as they're concerned. I'm, here I'm a recovering alcoholic. There I'm a recovered alcoholic. And the reason I didn't break my anonymity is because I have not indicated in any way that I'm a member of AA. Once I mention I'm a member of AA, then I no longer can give my name or show my picture or do anything. I have to be anonymous. In 19, or the year 2000, they had a big, A&E had a big special. One of the networks had a big special on alcoholics. It was really first time it's ever been done. They interviewed four people from the General Manager of AA World Services, a guy in Minneapolis, a guy in Los Angeles, a guy in South South, and they all talked I was the guy in Los Angeles, and none of us would show our face or our name. You know, if you all, if you had ever seen that, you'd now recognize me. But the uh, anonymity has to be that I do not use Alcoholics Anonymous for my own gain or goals in any way. I have to make myself anonymous here because that, that's the spiritual concept of it all. So anonymity really has to be kept in place, even more so ever than it ever was in the early 1940s or late 1930s. One of the big things that's talking about now is the book. Now this book is a good book. I mean, I guess it is. When I first came to AA in 1949, my sponsor had me read this book. I was young and slick. And I read this book, and they always say it's a badly written book. It isn't a badly written book. It's just a dull book. Jesus is dull. I gave up on it. Some years later, when I came off Skid Row, and, uh, well, I have not been nurtured. And I got a new sponsor. He said, I want you to read this book. I said, Jesus, Bob, I've written, I read that book. He said, will you read it again? I read it again. And you know what I found out this time? It really is a dull book. Jesus. I was a successful writer. I wrote for big advertising agencies on television. Buy this, do this, take this action. That's me. And you read this book. If you are thorough at the stage of your development. I just had to give up on that damn thing. 
obviously it needs to be rewritten. But, but uh, I fell into the hands of this sponsor who had me do these stupid things. Later on, I found him in the book. I hadn't seen him the first time. But little by little, I'll tell you if you're new, I want to tell you something funny about this book. This book is the only book I know that gets smarter every year. This book gets smarter every year. And one of the things they say about this book is that they say this book is a miracle. Now that may make you laugh, but I was made me laugh. Say, oh, this book is a miracle. <laughs> they use the word miracle so loosely in AA. It's just, I heard a guy say, I got up early this morning. I looked at the eastern sky. And the sun was coming up. And I said, it's a miracle. I've been given another day to work this wonderful program. Get up early tomorrow and have another miracle, you idiot, you know. <laughs> Miracles have to be unexplainable, or more correctly, inexplicable. You're not supposed to be able to describe miracles. What's a miracle about this book? Well, let's see, what's a miracle about this book? Not much. It was written by a guy three years sober. Which is a semi-miracle. If you're new, you might think, gee, guy three years sober should know enough to write a book by that time. <laughs> when you get to be three years sober, you'll discover you don't know enough to write a book. When you're five years sober, you just try to be nice to people three years sober. <laughs> Keep going to meetings, Jimmy. You're doing a nice job. By the time you're 10 years sober, you hate to send people three years sober to get your coffee. Was that two creams and one sugar or two sugars and one Oh, never mind, I'll do it myself. By the time you're 20 years sober, you hate to have people three years sober unattended on your property. Nothing, nothing against them, but you want to see how they're going to turn out before you make any decisions. <laughs> and here was this guy, wrote this book when he's three years sober, for one purpose, to raise money so they could build hospitals, which thank God they never could do. But he tried to, he didn't, wasn't cynical about it, he tried to put in things that he'd seen work around him. But it's hard to remember that most of the people around that came to AA in those days got drunk again. People didn't stay sober very well. But you know he was an alcoholic in the foreword. He says, we are a group of over, we are a group of 78 men and women who stayed sober a year. Or over 100 men and women. Later on he wrote, I know there was only 78, but I thought 100 sounded better. Yeah. We all understand that. And there's some question whether there's even 78, really, because people are getting drunk right left. In the first printing of the book, if you ever see a big red copy of the book, not like this, but really, read a copy of the book, there's some stories in the back. Most of those people died drunk because people didn't stay sober that much. Not because they were bad people, but because then they didn't really con comprehend, apparently, you have to keep doing it after you're okay again. That's one of the hard things for people like us to learn. I'm okay, I don't need to do it anymore. But he wrote this book, when he's three years sober, without any background and psychology or abnormal psychology or medicine or anything just by watching the few people staying sober who stayed sober and how they did it and took the uh, six steps of the Oxford group that they'd come from and tried to make 12 steps out of that they could make sense out of 
and uh, wrote this book. And what makes it a miracle? Well, a miracle is this. This book, written by this guy under those strange situations, has changed the lives of more alcoholics of our type in the last 64 years than all other therapies combined in the history of mankind. That makes that a miracle. That is a miracle book. And if you stay here a while, and if you stay here, it'll get smarter and smarter and smarter every year. I, uh, I read every August, all August, at a book study in California, and we, have, we read a chapter and discuss it. And I never, I've been doing it for 25 years, and I still read it and still find new things. Jesus, I didn't see that before. It's really an amazing thing. The, uh, they say, well, that's okay. The book's nice, but it should be updated. It has to be updated. The, I'll tell you, it's very hard to do that, because this book does not, is not written to provide information. This book is a textbook on how to deal with emotional problems. And emotional problems haven't changed in 5,000 years. When I get cut off on the freeway, <clears throat> I feel just the same way Pharaoh felt when it, the rivers ran red with blood. <laughs> Except I have more reason. Because <laughs> it's happening to me, that's why, if you all know. That's really one of the great reasons they tell you not to get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Not because they're bad things, but they change your perceptions of things. You go from a red blanket back to a blue one again, briefly. When you're, if you'll notice, when you're hungry, people act stupidly. I don't know why, but they do. What's wrong with you? What's rush, rush, I'm, When you're angry, God wants you to kill him sometimes. <laughs> for their own good. When you're lonely, you know they're all having fun somewhere, but they didn't tell you, did they? When you're tired, they literally attack you. I've been sober a long time. I get on that freeway sometimes if I can, if I'm talking to some little town somewhere in the hill somewhere, I'm back, get up early next morning, I'm tired, get on the freeway out by the ocean and drive downtown. And I, I can disguise, no one will ever know that I'm tired. Uh -huh. But they know. Little old lady up around La Cienega says, see the boy in the blue Buick? He's exhausted. I'm going to cut that son of a bitch off. <laughs> but the great thing AA has taught me is, no matter how tired you are, how bad you feel, you don't have to chase these people past your exit. <laughs> and if you do chase them, you can't do anything. You can only get next to them and give them a ray. <laughs> and if you haven't caught them by your exit, you have to... Good flying, Red Baron. We'll meet again sometime. <laughs> a few years ago, I cut off just turning from the Santa Monica Freeway to the Harbor Freeway, a very busy place, and a little girl came by and almost put me in the overpass. I'll tell you, I missed by this much. Just, I couldn't believe it. Oh, I sweat. And I thought, I'm going to make an exception in her case. I'm going to chase her as far as it takes to give her a... And I caught her on the Pasadena Freeway somewhere, and I gave her a quintuple ray. 
And now suddenly you realize, yeah, she's about 17 years old, just a young girl with long blonde hair, same age as my daughter, my granddaughter, Katie Doherty. I thought, what kind of a Grinch have I turned into, for God's sakes? I, come on. So I gave her a big smile, and she went, But that's what exists out there in that world, folks. And this book is designed, gives us tools to deal with emotions so we don't have to drink to stand it. Because the curse of the alcoholic is that sobriety is more painful than drinking, which is why we eventually drink again. It's a hard thing to understand. That's why they say in the first step, admit a problem over, have a powerless over alcohol, dash, which means end of thought, beginning of new thought, I'm also powerless over sobriety. Because the curse of alcoholism is alcohol is a cure to helpless sobriety. In fact, some doctors say that for people like us, sometimes we have to drink to preserve our sanity. It gets that bad. Now, what is this book? It deals with actions and things to do that alter our perceptions to deal with correcting emotional, terribly emotional immaturity. The, uh, they say, well, maybe we should study the book. And there's a movement now afoot in AA in some parts of the AA to really study. They get together and study each sentence and write about it. And to me, that's just so inane. Because this, you can memorize this book and die drunk. This is a cookbook. This gives you recipes. It doesn't give you answers. It gives you recipes. Just like you can memorize a cookbook and starve. Boy, I've memorized every diet. Now I'm dying. Why is that? Because you have to take the actions. And the actions here are a couple of sentences may be a little archaic, but they deal with correcting emotions. If we didn't correct them, there would be nobody in this hall tonight anymore. There'd be sober alcoholics anywhere. Because the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous is a guide to those directions and getting through sponsors and people and surrounding pressures to do things that are listed in this book we would never ordinarily do because they don't seem to make sense and have no application to my life. Now they say, let's change that book. Well, they, a couple of years ago, the World Service Office, they had a big discussion about that, so we changed the book. Thank God they didn't. They, changed the, they rearranged the stories in the back and added some new stories, which is fine. But those first 164 pages are the most valuable pages in our lives for people like you and me. All the additional literature, all the side literature, all the... Oh, there's a lot of AA in this book I'm reading. If you want to find a book with a lot of A in it, try this one. This got a lot of A in it. And that's why it would seem, realistically speaking, that we probably should not change the book. Who wants to change? Who, who wants to guess which part of the book would be changed by just making a few little changes? To, for somebody who's coming to AA now, based on their three months of sobriety, deciding what do we change? Who cares what they think? This book is, it may be difficult at first to comprehend, it may be dull, but stick around. It'll smarten up and so will you. So really, it, it, the, the concept of changing the book doesn't seem to really make much sense. One of the big things that, uh, one of the great problems, of course, we talk about, as I say, here, 
What is the big deal about the Lord's Prayer? Why do we have to say the Lord's Prayer? It's not, it doesn't make sense. A lot of you don't say it. Much, most of the Asians don't say it. Most say it in uh, New Zealand, a lot of places. A few meetings that do. They're kind of eccentric. Because it's a, the argument is it's a Christian prayer. has nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. And we shouldn't use it. It's too religious. That's why we say the serenity prayer, which is not religious. And it isn't religious. Except the Senator, uh, let me read you, let me read you the serenity prayer. You might find this interesting. This is the serenity prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr in 1935. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that Jesus will make all things right is to surrender to his will. That I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever the next. Amen. That's the serenity prayer. We've taken the first few lines and painted our prayer. But this is really a religious prayer. That's what you call a Christian prayer. The, uh, the Lord's Prayer, people, I always have to laugh, they say it's a Christian it was given by a Jewish rabbi to 12 of his followers and it has, never, has nothing to do with Christianity in itself. I, uh, I ran across a letter from Bill Wilson written in 1959 on that subject, which I also brought with me. <laughs> Be careful what I have in my other pockets. This was written April 14, 1959. This is from the archives in New York. Now about the business of adding the Lord's Prayer to each AA meeting. This practice properly came from the Oxford groups who were influential in the early days of AA. You're probably noted in AA Comes of Age book what the connection of these people with AA really was. I think saying the Lord's Prayer was a custom of theirs following the close of each meeting. Therefore, it has quite easily got shifted into the general custom among us. Of course, there are always those who seem to be offended by the introduction of any prayer, whatever, into an ordinary AA gathering. Also, it is sometimes complained that the Lord's Prayer is a Christian document. Nevertheless, this prayer is of such widespread use and recognition that the argument of its Christian origin seems to be a little far-fetched. It is also true that AAs believe in some kind of God and that communication and strength is obtainable through His grace. Since this is the general consensus, it seems only right at least the serenity, that at least the serenity prayer and the Lord's Prayer be used in conjunction with our meetings. It does not seem necessary to defer to the feelings of our agnostic and atheist newcomers to the extent of completely hiding our light under a bushel. However, around here, the leader of the meetings usually asks those to join him in the Lord's Prayer who feel they would care to do so. The worst that happens to the objectors is that they have to listen to it. This is doubtless a salutary exercise in tolerance at their steps of progress. So that's the sum of the Lord's Prayer business as I recall it. Uh, I never could understand why, I mean, when I got sober, I, was, I hated God because and God was something I found after I was sober a while. My higher power was my sponsor and I never wanted to return to God. Because I'd broken all Ten Commandments, and I knew that if God existed, I was damned. And I understand that feeling exactly. But I also know that they said the Lord's Prayer, so I said, my sponsor said, say the Lord's Prayer, so I said the Lord's Prayer. You don't have to like what they do here, you just have to do it to make it work. 
And I don't, uh, I'm not telling you to say the Lord's Prayer, but I think you should not be afraid of it either. The Lord, there's nothing in the Lord's Prayer that in one way or another is not in the 12 steps. There's nothing in there. That's a, it's just such a big, strange objection to it. But, but people in Minneapolis, Minnesota, they had a big movement. They almost, people were getting drunk over that Lord's Prayer, so they should or shouldn't, and, and other places. And it's really kind of sad and dumb. Because people like us have, have a tendency to be a little intolerant. The great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is this. Is that it seems to be working very well. Now a lot of people don't make it. You know, it's too bad in a way. When you hear speakers in AA, there usually are people who are like me. I slipped for years. Now I'm sober. been sober forever. And other people else. And we forget that most people who go out and get drunk don't make it. You know, it's too, to make AA really, really realistic, we should have a speaker every so often who says, and then it turned out I just couldn't make it, goddammit. Because that's the way it really is out there. I'm in a situation that most of you aren't in now. I, I mean, after I was sober a while, I got some jobs and was finally able to hold a job. And we got advertising and radio and television and public relations and became somewhat successful. And I was 15 years sober in some hideous fit of misjudgment. I left a job in Beverly Hills, and for the last 31 years I've been the managing director of a big facility on Skid Row where we try to keep people alive, the same place that threw me out on the last day I drank. And when I go to work in the morning, I do something none of you do. I have to step over the bodies of men and women and children dying from drug addiction and alcoholism on the street. And I work all day and drive, step over on the way home. I say, why would you help these people? I can't tell you how often I've helped them. But then I have to remember, if, if sobriety could be conveyed just by someone's wishing well about it, why did I slip all those years? Year after year went from being a high-bottom drunk to a medium-bottom drunk to a low-bottom drunk to being a toothless bum on the street begging for money. All because of one thing. I did not choose to take actions I didn't agree with. And that's what it really boils down to. And that's what we have to convey here, is that there's a series of actions in here that when followed, seem to alter our perceptions of reality enough so they make sobriety tenable. Sometimes bad days. You know, some, it's too bad sometimes because you hear people talk about alcoholism, and there's a lot of times where you have to say, well, I drank a lot in my life, and nothing went to hell. And then I got sober and I found this wonderful program, and now I'm just really wonderful. And that isn't really the way it goes if you're new. You go down little by little, you know. Oh, man, i got to wash it. Oh, Jesus, I'm going to do something. And when you get an AA, it doesn't go about it. You go, oh, I found a new program. Of, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and we all have to help each other because we have to help our, each other overcome those terrible misperceptions that will make it absolutely essential for us to drink and nothing can stop it. So, on this 70th birthday of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I, I think about that sometimes when I was new. And the one good thing about being sober as long as I was, when I was five years sober, I remember sitting in a room with Bill Wilson, the guy that wrote this book, and talked for almost 50 minutes. The only one thing wrong with that, I was so doing so well, and I mean, I felt so wonderful that I'd seen him. I spent probably 45 minutes of me talking, and uh, his, I remember his face was... 
I thought, well, I wonder what that face means. And then some years later, I sat in my office and some boring little puke talked to me. I found my face going, oh, yes, that's what he meant. But to sit in the same office, really, and shake hands, he was really very pleasant to me. I heard him give his last talk in Miami Beach. Heard him. I uh, knew all of her heard Ebby talk, the guy that brought the message to AA. That's one thing good about being sober a long time. You heard a lot of these guys do these things. But all of the knowledge, all of the information, all of means absolutely nothing till I do something about it. Uh, I'm going to stop now because I, we were, last night, I know it was Wednesday night in Los Angeles, but it was last night, before I, I, I went to my home group. AA has really grown a lot. My home group, some of you have been there. It's the largest group in the world. Some thousand people gather every Wednesday night in Los Angeles. Very exciting. They're all very activists. And really something. And uh, about, I was about five years sober. I was starting to do good. I finally got some front teeth. I was making my move. I thought, I should be secretary of a group. God, I'm, I'm ready to be secretary of a group. And the biggest group in Los Angeles was something called the Brentwood Group, which meant about four blocks from where O.J. Simpson didn't kill his wife. <laughs> and uh, they had a steering committee that selected selected the uh, secretary. And I had a stooge on that steering committee, so, so I said, uh, mention my name tonight and uh, see what happens. And so I saw him the next day, I said, I, am I the new secretary? He said, no, it died for lack of a second. So I knew I was not in big demand. But if a couple of months later, a little meeting hall where the whole meeting just meetings every night, guy says, gee, the Tuesday night meeting just died and there's nobody. An empty night, Tuesday night. Do you know anybody who wants to start a meeting? I said, yeah, I do. And I got 12 tattered followers. We went over there and rented the hall and, and I had a meeting. I wrote a format and we had a meeting. The first week we had about 17 people there, including our speaker. And the second week we had about 22 people. The third week we had about 28 people. Then I offended some people with my announcements. We were back to 12 people. But, it was... but we tried to observe the traditions and do a lot of things. At the end of the year we had about uh, 35 people coming regularly. And I thought, you know, a lot of groups should have the election now. But this would really be unfair to these people. They're all new. They need guidance. They need help. I'm just going to sacrifice myself. I won't even mention the election. I'll just surrender and do it again for another year. So at the end of the second year, we were getting about 65 or 70 people. And we we're making our, and I thought, we could have the election now, but, but they're like an emerging third world country. I mean, they have it here, but they don't have it here. And, and just about then, some goof came up to me, whose life I had saved, I'm sorry to say. Are we ever going to have an election around here? And I said, why, Jimmy? Is something wrong? We're running well, we're gaining people, we're doing a good job, we're going to be well known, we're following the traditions. Is that wrong? He said, oh no, don't be angry. He said, it's just that other groups around here say you're kind of a dictator. <laughs> and if we had the election, if we had the election, they couldn't say a word. I said, that's a good idea. So we had an election and I was swept out of office. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but to show what a good job I had done, even after I left, it really took off. 
announced about a thousand people every Wednesday night. I'm not the secretary, but I'm the founder. And I, I sit in the middle and I give little signals. Nobody pays any attention, but it does the world for me. At the end of the meeting, I stand in the back and I'm still on my way home from work, so I got a shirt and tie, look halfway decent. And people bring their newcomers up and say, This is Clancy. He's the founder of our group. He's been sober almost 50 years. He, he flies all over the world to talk to people about AA. And the newcomers go, Oh. And I say, hello there, welcome. I hope you brought your problems tonight. Many folks leave them here. <laughs> Once in a while, some boob will come up who doesn't know who I am. Hey, buddy, can you give me a ride back over to the hospital psycho ward? And the great message of Alcoholics Anonymous is this. I can think whatever I want to. I can look right into his sick little eyes and say, what? Or think I can think. What? Give you a ride back to the psych ward? You should have stayed there, you crazy bastard. The room here is a thousand people who, who need to get into action. One who has given all, year after year after year. I'm not just a guy in a shirt and tie. I'm Clancy Eye from up in the sky. Now, I can think that as long as I say, okay. <laughs> and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is always the same. After you drop that puke off and you're driving home, your head says, oh, Clancy, is there no end to your goodness? Because <laughs> even weak, emotional, dumb, fallible people like me live comfortable lives in Alcoholics Anonymous if I remember to do the things it talks about. That's why I want to remember, in your group, make sure you have alcoholics so the new alcoholic can identify. Make sure that you maintain anonymity. No matter how good it looks to break it, you may break yourself. Remember the book is really a valuable document. There's never been one for people like us who ever had anything to do with it. And maybe sometimes when no one's looking, you can say the Lord's Prayer, but you don't have to. But Alcoholics Anonymous on its 70th birthday, has to remind us, yet you and I are very lucky. We've been born in the only window in the history of mankind where there's a place like people like you and me to go. And we're in the middle of it. And we better stay here. Thank you. so much, Clancy. That was wonderful. Uh, okay. Uh, we'll now uh, pass the uh, baskets for AA's seventh tradition, which states that we should be self-supporting. Uh, I just ask you to, uh, to just pay attention, though, to uh, the announcement I'm about to make. Before I do so, however, I'd like to mention that our share of the expenses for organising this meeting tonight have been considerable. And so I ask everyone to be as generous as possible 
to help us to maintain, uh, to remain fully self-supporting. Uh, any excess uh, that's collected this evening will be distributed to the suggested service arms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Could all of the collectors now please stand? Uh, and once you've uh, 